Your Newcastle. Welcome to season four of Your Newcastle. Today we are joined via Zoom with the amazing author, Dr. Saul Griffith. And Saul has been talking for quite some time about his research. He's been advising the Biden government. He's back in Australia these days about electrifying everything. Saul, you're an inventor, author, founder, and scientist. Tell a little bit about your work as a founder and chief scientist at Other Lab. First, thanks for letting me be here. I'm dialing in from the southern steel city of Australia, Wollongong. So <laughs> I'd like to say I actually used to live in Newcastle. I love Newcastle. My work is actually in inventing hardware technologies. So, you know, there's an affinity for both those cities because they build things. And I've spent the, my professional job for the last 30 years has been building companies that make things. Most of those companies have been in either energy or in robotics. So I've built wind energy technologies and solar energy technologies and robotics and done a huge amount of work like that. I did most of that work in the US in Silicon Valley. But more recently, I've been finding myself more and more engaged around the policy side of climate change because I realized that technology is really only half of the story when it comes to addressing our climate issues. And in fact, it's often only half the cost. And a lot of the costs of our energy system are rooted in policy and regulatory things. So I've been rolling up my sleeves the last couple of years, first in the US and now in Australia, trying to help fight for the good team on climate solutions and making those climate solutions work for everyday people. In your work as a chief scientist at Other Lab, you're doing independent research and development as you said, a, a lot in the the US, you were started to help government agencies, Fortune 500 companies understand their energy infrastructure and what deep decarbonisation looks like. Tell us a little bit about that work. And, you know, you're back living in Wollongong, could have been Newcastle, but that's okay. At least it's back in, in Australia. Uh, you had been a climate advisor to the current US president, Joe Biden, in this process. Tell us how you ended up in that role. Uh, I think technically we can't quite say we're advising Biden, but we do work with the White House. The way this all began is, you know, I was building wind energy and solar energy companies. And so I had an interest in how the world generates and how the world uses energy. I eventually convinced the Department of Energy to undertake a multi-year study where we looked at all of the energy flows in the United States from where the coal is dug up all the way through to where the tea kettle is boiled or where the natural gas comes from all the way through to the manufacture of plastics. So I have this almost autistic knowledge of how the energy economy works. And I did that work with the Department of Energy to help them highlight things that technologies that needed investing in, but really saw it actually also as a blueprint for how do you deeply decarbonize. So how do you get to zero emissions when you understand all of the machines underneath all of those energy flows? That led to writing the book Electrify in the US, which in some respects was a love letter for whoever was going to win the 2020 presidential race. And that turned out to be Joe Biden. And the last three years through an organization I started with a few close friends called Rewiring America, we tried to turn as much of that book into US climate and energy policy as possible. We were joined by probably a thousand other people who were really working behind the scenes in writing that policy 
that just got you know an astounding amount of effort from a lot of very smart people but that just became law through the inflation reduction act i'm super excited actually heading back to the us next week it'll be curious to see energy and climate nerds all drunk and partying together <laughs> that that is the atmosphere this is the biggest piece of climate legislation the world has ever seen congratulations it's, it's really going to move the needle so yeah it's, i'm i'm very proud of the work very happy and privileged to know all the people who are doing it with me and excited to go get drunk with them all <laughs> Sounds like someone from a steel city partying, but for very good reason. That's no mean feat, particularly given the political climate. You know, it's a, it is very different, the system over there to the system here. It also inspired you when you moved back to Australia to start the Rewiring Australia movement. How has that really been going? We've had a a shift in the federal government, which has seen much more positive action in starting to address issues like decarbonisation and climate change. But you have quite an avant-garde theory and uh, ideology that is quite tangible when people actually either read the book or listen to this podcast or see you speak that does explain the process of electrifying everything and how that actually works in terms of decarbonisation. Yeah, it's in some respects is a really, I take a very abstract thing, energy flows, climate issues, and I really reduce it to the machines that exist in our economies and in our even in our homes. And you can now really talk about our climate trajectory literally in terms of the eight machines in your house that are still burning fossil fuels. And now we can talk about the eight electrical machines that you're going to have to replace those with and then power those eight electrical machines with solar and with wind, which is some more industrial machinery. And that we can now talk in that very, very concrete fashion about how to get to zero emissions and i think it was reducing the 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 act of getting to zero emissions to like counting literally counting the machines in the us it's about a billion in australia it's about 100 million machines between us and zero so those eight machines for people that haven't had the chance to meet you or read this book yet let's just break down those machines like in the kitchen and in the laundry most Australian households have 1.9 vehicles on average so let's call that two cars more than likely they've got a natural gas stove and oven. More than likely they've got gas running their water heater. Uh, a lot of them have gas for their space heaters, which is what heats your house. So, you know, that's the start is those five machines, the cars, the kitchen, the water heater, the space heater. Additionally, you've got a fuse box, which moves all the electricity power around the house. We're going to need to look at those because we need to put more electricity through them when we electrify your space heater and your water heater. And then the other two machines or three machines are vehicle charges, which we're going to have to have in houses, whether or not you have solar on your roof and whether or not you have a battery on the side of your house. So I think it's it's very liberating. Like we've had 50 years of trying to figure out what does a climate solution look like? And it's been a culture war and we've reduced it to drinking straws. <laughs> Not really... <laughs> You know, stainless steel water bottles and reusable drinking straws are a good idea, but they don't get us to zero emissions. It's actually, you know, in the next 20 years, you're going to replace those eight machines in your house no matter what. 
Now we just have to to, to hit our climate targets. We got to make sure that when you replace those machines, you replace them with renewably powered electrical machines. So it's like, oh, actually, that's not so hard. Yeah, the the Volvo's fifteen years old. I can imagine in twenty twenty six, it's going to kick the bucket. That's the moment I should get an electric car. Oh yeah, we we did a kitchen reno. I can't remember whether it was twenty ten or twenty fifteen, but like we're going to have to do that again in a couple of years. We may as well do the electric induction cooktop at that point. And I think you can now tell very real storytelling to Australian households like, you know, it's just these machines. You don't really have a passionate relationship with them. And, you know, when you do upgrade them, the air quality in your household is going to get better. And really critically, and this is the gift that Australia has to give the world, we're going to show the world that if you do this right, households can save a substantial amount of money every year on their energy bills. Your Newcastle, your podcast. Got feedback or suggestions for us? Connect via the podcast link at newcastle.nsw.gov.au. So at the moment, the average Australian household currently uses around 102 kilowatts of energy per day and spends $5,248 a year on related energy costs. Under this type of change, if we could fund the switch as it's called or as it's been phrased through Rewiring Australia, through what is estimated at a $12 billion investment in over five years, electrifying Australian homes, we could actually save $300 billion in household savings by 2035. These are pretty big numbers. Yeah. So I think you asked 17 questions just there. So thank you. But it's a really good opportunity to tell a bunch of stories. So first today, we use 102 kilowatt hours of energy per day on for the average Australian household. Although we don't think of it in kilowatt hours because some of it comes as as gas, some of it comes as pet litres of petrol and diesel, and some of it comes in electrical kilowatt hours. In fact, only about 13 of those 102 are electrical energy today. If you electrify the cars, if you electrify the space heaters, the water heaters, and all of those machines we mentioned, and you do it with solar and wind, it turns out that the same Australian household will only need about 37 kilowatt hours of energy to have the same Australian lifestyle. So it's not taking your cars away. It's not taking the barbecue away. It's just changing them for better, cleaner electric ones. And astonishingly, it will more than halve the amount of energy that you need. So it's the ultimate in energy efficiency is this electrification project. And then the number that you said, about $5,000 a year, that was what we were paying in energy in 2020. But with uh, Putin's war in Ukraine and other volatile international circumstances, actually this year, most Australian households will pay closer to $7,000. But you can use the that idea of 37 kilowatt hours that we need in the future. And if we electrify it and we get half of that energy from rooftop solar, which is a reasonable amount to expect, and the other half from the grid, we can sort of predict a point in the future where you're only spending a few thousand dollars a year for all of your energy instead of five to 7,000. So literally in every Australian household, we could be saving three to $5,000 a year by the end of this decade. And because there's 10 million households, that adds up to a huge amount of money. And so then you say, well, what does it cost to get us to that fantastic future? And most Australians will be like, oh, who's this guy, Saul Griffith? He's crazy. Doesn't he know that electric cars are expensive? Doesn't he know that it's a, a pain in the ass to install an electric induction stove? And I will say, yes, I do know those things, but that's not a permanent state of being, right? The car, the prices are falling on the cars. The prices are falling on on all the all the goodies for this electrified future. 
And you could sort of say, if, if we just made sure that every time somebody's going to buy a new car in Australia, that we give them the difference between, you know, they might have been going to buy a Honda Civic that was petrol powered. If you could just give them the extra $12,000 so they could buy a Hyundai Kona electric, and you just thought about the difference between what we're doing and what we have to do, you'd only need to spend around about $12 billion. Maybe I'm wrong, maybe it's 20, but it's it's actually a fairly small number in the Australian total budget context to get every household to have all the electric things and the marketplace to a point where the electric car is now cheaper when you're in the showroom, that the the right choice is the cheaper, easy choice. We just It's like they call it a market transition point. We're right in the middle of it. And if we saw Australian households as Australian energy infrastructure, which I think is kind of the right way to see it in the future, we'd see this as the most extraordinary national investment opportunity. And if we invest in helping Australian households get to this future, then we'll save so much money collectively as a nation, we'll, we'll really see it as an economic boom that's unparalleled in our history. Absolutely. There's lots of different ways all different levels of government can actually help in the regulatory process, the legislative process to make this happen. It is about subsidies for electric cars. Uh, just this week alone, we've seen some trials around street charges rolling out with people don't have off-street parking, how they can actually access charging points for electric vehicles and the like in Sydney. Uh, hopefully that will go broader than, than Sydney. Metropolitan areas like Newcastle, there is demand amongst residents here f- for that type of technology. There is potential changes with the Building Code of Australia, certain regulations that could actually make you know pretty important changes from that regulatory framework that you're talking about that inhibits these type of changes or can actually uh, help them be taken up in in a in larger amounts particularly if you're talking about new builds or or renovations there are some mooted changes afoot at that level again you're asking seven intelligent questions in each one yeah Uh, you're welcome (laughs) nice the way i think it is you know fossil fuels have been great to humans for 100 years they increased our quality of life and increased our lifespan almost doubled it and so that was good, but they've been around so long that we sort of wrote all of the rules of the road for them. So the building codes were written for fossil fuels and the the, the way we designed the, the, even the road law, you know, even the tax code is largely written for machines based on fossil fuels because they've had lobby groups lobbying for that for 100 years. So we'd like to not penalise the new clean incumbent And so that's why we've got to get in there at federal level, state level and local level at every layer to get to make sure that the playing field is level and we're subsidizing the things that we need in the future, which is clean electric things and not subsidizing things that we don't. And then to to put it in perspective, because I think the word subsidy really gets a lot of rubs a lot of people the wrong way. So here's a different way to think about it. The average car in Australia will last 20 years once it's been purchased. It will drive on average the numbers of 13,200 kilometers a year. We know that the average car is 10.3 litres per 100 kilometres. We know what the price of petrol has been for the last 20 years and will be for the next 20. You'll spend $42,000. If you had an electric car, you can predict that you'd spend about $14,000 over the 20-year lifetime to move the car the same number of kilometres. So that's a $28,000 difference. So... That's why I think we need to stop thinking about this in terms of of subsidies and start thinking about the investment opportunity. We have to import 
that $42,000 of oil from overseas. So it's not really creating a lot of jobs here. Whereas if we could sum it, you know, use that future $28,000 in savings to help that person buying the Honda Civic upgrade to the electric Honda Civic, then it's that's where that's why this is a good deal for the country and, and should be seen more as a modern infrastructure investment and a climate investment than to be seen as a as a subsidy. But then, you know, that's that's to say that's the things that you could move the lever on federally, you know, tax codes and etc. You then got to think about the design of the electricity system, which are largely state-owned now, and are the incentives in the place in the local distribution and transmission networks to help the household do all this electrification or are the incentives against us? And right now the incentives are not so much favoring the household as favoring the generators. So that's a that's basically a state government problem. And then zoning and building codes, a lot of those end up being local government. And, you know, if Australia is super smart, and I think we can be, and I think we can be a leading light in the world, we figure out how to have a, you know, all of government approach to climate that aligns all of those incentives to help, you know, it, it'll be good politics because it's going to help everyday Australians save a few thousand dollars a year and make the air quality in their house better for their kids. Like there's, it's all win-wins, but there is a lot of work to do um, and a lot of fight, a lot of little, a lot of fights, big and little, because it's the incumbent, it's the gas industry, it's the oil industry that's going to fight against us on this. That those fights have been going on for decades, probably more at a broader scale than at a, at a local level. For us here, we've seen opportunities around allowing offshore wind on a large scale, just in terms of jobs, in terms of electricity production, the grid network that exists both, I think, here and in Wollongong, and being able to plug into that current network and supply cleaner energy is all, I think, on the horizon for us in that sort of the larger scale work, but at the same time, being able to help individual households understand where they can actually make a significant difference. And I think that's what your Rewiring Australia Network does. Uh, that's what your book also outlines, not just for policymakers, but also so people can actually understand, yes, I like my lifestyle. Yes, I care about the environment and the climate, but how can I, you know, keep both and, you know, make the switch? It is, and sometimes the amount of information uh, that people have is can be overwhelming from different sources. I personally, I think this is distilled down into quite a simple format. But I've talked to you before about, you know, small things around uh, doing exemplars, and you're working in in Wollongong doing a whole suburb that transitions to electric machines, as you call them, for the household. Let me know how that's going, because I, I think Newcastle, as I've said to you, would, would be keen to, there'd be suburbs here that would be very keen to join that that little race. So I'm not shy, and you've got the point of, of digging in and going for the federal policy levers like we've done in the US, and I think we need to do that. But you've actually said what I think matters the most for, this, for Australians, because we're largely a pretty practical bunch. We're like, well, show us that it works. And so I've been sort of, advocating for well let's just do it in an in, in a real australian city or a real australian town or suburb let's electrify as much as we can and show that it's not going to break the grid it won't lead to phases going out of control it won't ruin quality of life and so 
through that actually there's a lot of volunteerism now in my local community in 2515 so that's north wollongong and they you know through word of mouth and and literally door knocking we now have more than a thousand out of you know out of 3900 households signed up to hopefully participate in a pilot to prove to the world that look here it is it works here's the economics works etc now because it's the pilot it's still a little bit risky and it still costs a little more so we're also trying to work with the federal and state governments to help you know cover that risk but you would actually really like to be running that experiment as many places as possible it's not happening in 2515 for any magical reason other than i was here and there were half a dozen sets of local concerned citizens who who wanted to do the volunteering so it's it's happening i think it's extraordinary as a story like if if you were a federal politician you'd want to have your ear to this ground to hear like just what portion of people really want to roll up their sleeves and do in their community climate action like not the old protesting but like actually no let's fix and rewire our community it feels like we're on the cusp of a revolution here it's like the first we're leading the world so america might have got to the legislative goalposts before australia but our communities are because we're more you know we felt the bushfires we felt the floods our communities are really ready to roll up their sleeves and do it i'd love to see it done in newcastle and ultimately the reason to do these lighthouse projects or these exemplars is so that everyone else can follow really quickly because to hit our climate targets like we've got to start this in every you know there's 2600 postcodes in australia we've got to start it in every one in the next few years to get to get to our climate targets Absolutely. And I have that same sense and have had had that for a very long time here in Newcastle. There is a, a lot we have done in local government, um, you know, push levers around installing solar farms. And I think we were the first council to have all our power come from renewable sources, you know, did those power purchase agreements really early on, like pulling as many levers as you can. But it really is that whole of government approach. But it is also more importantly, when it's community-led, you're always going to get a good outcome. So I think that really is the key. The community is demanding it, but they're happy to chip in and do it themselves. And that's the sense I get all around my community here in Newcastle. And I, I know that they would 100% partner with you to go on this journey because I don't see a choice. If we aren't on this journey, there is, there's not a choice. <laughs> there's not another option. Yeah, and, and and really, there is no other option. This is the best idea we have, and I think it's right. What why we're trying to involve the federal and state governments here because, like, you guys, if we're going to hit our targets, everyone's going to be doing this this decade. You want to figure out how it actually gets done. So it's amazing the specificity that we're now to with the questions in this community because they're trying to figure it out for themselves. There's, there's no blueprint. Like right? we're all winging it, but it's like. How do you deal with the fixed income couple who are quite elderly, right? And they're capital constrained. How do you deal with the renters in the community? How do you deal with the low income? Where does the community battery go? Does it go at the RSL or the Surf Life Saving Club? Where does the solar go? Does it go on the church roof or on the school roof? Like at that level of granularity, you really are engaging with the community in really positive ways because the community is like, oh, this is an opportunity to build the community we want. It's like, it's it's heady stuff. It's exciting. Absolutely. Your Newcastle is changing daily and we care about you. Have your say at newcastle.nsw.gov.au. For us here in Newcastle, we have had some interesting mix of 
uh, I guess we've had, you know, almost a decade of uh, conservative federal government, so that ha- we haven't shifted the dial very far in that regard. But we still have a really interesting conversation going on and potential investment into hydrogen as either going into gas peakers or uh, hydrogen for export. There is a lot of conversation around hydrogen being almost a saviour in terms of energy, whether it's an energy to export that replaces fossil fuels or whether it's an energy that can be pumped down gas lines. I know that you have some strong opinions that uh, on this topic, which um, I think people would be interested in. Uh, this might be an invitation for a rant, which I'll, ne- I'll never sure. turn down. And I, you know, I'm a child of heavy industry. So my first job was on the rod and bar mill up your way. And then my second job was in the aluminium smelter in, in uh, Western Sydney. And while at the moment I'm talking and campaigning a lot around what we need to do for it, households that's the this decade opportunity in australia i really have my eye on that prize of like what are we going to replace on all of the ship that ships that leave your port in fact you know i look out my window as we're doing this podcast and i can see a 12 a dozen dry goods ships in port of wollongong all being loaded up with either coal or or ore so what's going to replace those especially in a community like Newcastle and Wollongong, is an enormously important question. Because of all of that, I have great concern about Australia's current infatuation with hydrogen as the answer for everything. I actually know hydrogen intimately. i funded by the US Department of Energy and then funded by a bunch of automotive companies. I built uh, hydrogen tanks for uh, vehicles and you know, sold that technology to companies, you might have heard of them, Toyota, Porsche, Audi, Chrysler. So, you know, I've taken large bore rifles and shot hydrogen tanks just to see what happens because that was one of the safety tests. So I've also seen hydrogen tanks explode and that's humbling. But anyway, that's to say, you know, I think I know a little bit about hydrogen and the, the bit I know concerns me because the only good hydrogen is green hydrogen. So it has to start with electricity. It's a fairly inefficient process to make compress, store, transport, decompress, and then burn hydrogen again. It's a very efficient process to take electricity and just send it over the wires and then use it at the other end. And fundamentally, that means uh, hydrogen is going to cost at least three, probably five times the cost of electricity that goes in to make it. So that'll make it much more expensive. And let's consider something that's dear to your region, steel making, roughly half the energy of making steel half the cost of making steel is the cost of the energy. So if we have the idea that we're going to ship hydrogen to Japan or Europe to make steel with our iron ore over there, that's insane because that's going to be five or six times more expensive than if we use our electricity to make steel here. There's, we will need hydrogen for some things, absolutely for ammonia. Australia could make all of the world's ammonia. That would be a good deal. That would be worth about $100 billion dollars. That would be worth more than our fossil fuel exports. That's critical to humans because that's agriculture and food. That's the fertilizer for it. And so we definitely need that little bit of hydrogen. But right now we're infatuated as hydrogen is the answer for everything. And that's driven a lot because the industry that profits from the hydrogen story is the gas industry. So it's a bit of a distraction that they're profiting from. I'd prefer us to think a little further in the future and understand that the most likely way that we're going to make most of our export earnings, not only to offset what we 
quote unquote lose on fossil fuels, but to make much, much more, it's using, we're going to have the world's cheapest wind and solar power. There's no doubt about it. And we're going to use that cheapest electricity to make the world's cheapest metals. You know, turn our iron ore into steel, turn our bauxite into aluminium, copper, nickel, lithium, we have it all. They're all going to go through our industrial cities and our industrial ports like your town and my town. And that is the extraordinary story for the 2030s. Uh, but we're not investing as much in that idea as we are in hydrogen, the idea of hydrogen. So I'm concerned that we might be betting on the wrong horse here. And I think someone needs to be pretty honest about that. Very diplomatic response there, Saul. Given your deep understanding of hydrogen and some of the precautionary tales, it is something that I think we need to be mindful of. We don't have time to waste in this challenge with our environment and with the climate and it's a bit these are big investments and realistically if we tested your hypothesis it only creates onshore jobs in manufacturing here in Australia which is really a win for the country if COVID taught us nothing it taught us that we need onshore manufacturing and we need to be investing in onshore manufacturing it's a it's actually a crying shame that we don't have our own car manufacturing here in Australia because then you'd actually have a policy lever you could pull within your own national government to actually manufacture the type of cars we need for the future you know the demise of manufacturing with subsequent government policies and the like and offshoring it has been to our detriment but if just in testing your theory it created or recreated some of those manufacturing jobs because it is and it will be cheaper to manufacture steel and ammonium here on our shores. Well, fantastic for this country. It is fantastic. And, you know, honestly, that's Australia's opportunity to atone for our climate sins. It will be very hard. And, and we're already seeing this with the conversation about gas in Europe this winter because Putin's cut off the Russian natural gas. Europe won't be able to get zero emissions without nuclear in most likelihood or a lot of austerity. And that's going to be, and they'll have much more expensive energy than we do here. And if you look around the world, you know, the population density of Asia, like really Australia is one of the few countries that can produce so much renewables that we have spare to what they call embody that renewable energy in our export products. We can become the world's foundry. What does the world need to get through this energy transition? They need wind turbines. What are they made out of? They're made out of steel and copper. Uh, what, are, what are electric cars made out of? They're made out of steel, aluminium, copper, nickel, lithium. What are, you know, what are solar cells made out of? They're made out of glass, silica, and aluminium, right? We, we know how to make all those things. We should be able to be the low cost provider of those things to the world in a, in a renewable zero emission world. That's certainly an outcome that if we're wise, we will work towards and then we will benefit from. Couldn't agree more. It's your Newcastle. Access all our services and resources at newcastle.nsw.gov.au. Thanks again for your time. It's great, again, to be able to talk to you in some detail and you know, make some of these changes tangible to people that haven't had the chance to meet you, see you, read the book. And I really think it's a good message that needs to get out, particularly in these coming years, when we do have a new federal government that is committed to taking action on climate and has already started taking the steps. And with the community and local government and hopefully state governments with them, I hope that the decade of inaction 
turns into a decade of action. To put the compliment straight back at you, I'm, I, I thank you. I am seeing an incredible number of women engage in Australian politics. We just saw this in the last election. The leadership that I'm seeing at local and state level by very smart women who are a little bit like, well, the men screwed up. <laughs> We've got to step in and fix this mess. And I actually, I you know, I work a lot in the US and a lot here, but I... I think that it's the spirit of the Country Women's Association rolling up their sleeves and getting the job done that means Australia has the best glide path into this transition. And it's, you know, thanks to people like you. So thanks for your work. Thanks all. And I stand with all those elected women. (laughs) It's hard work, but someone's got to do it. That's your Newcastle. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate and review us wherever you listen. 